If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2. The book of Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you don't know me, my name is Colby Wheeler. I'm the family pastor here. Uh, Zach and his family are out this morning. And uh, we had an elder plan to preach, but he had a really close exposure to COVID this week. And so I got, I got put in the hot seat about midweek. And so I'm excited to be here this morning and get to, get to share the word with you guys. In chapter 2, as we're going to read, we're going to see a little bit about marriage. We're going to see really the first marriage take place. We're going to see the creation of, of woman. We're going to see uh, all that God does through that and the reasons for that. And as I was thinking through marriage this week, I was thinking about me and my wife, Ashley, and in the short time that we've been married, uh, about three years or so, we've, we've had several different funny stories and things happen. I was thinking through some of those stories, and one thing that came to mind as I began to think about the traditions of marriage was uh, actually whenever I asked her father for... Uh, his blessing in, in me marrying his daughter. Uh, we joke about that a lot because we say that the scene for that was a little bit more rant- romantic than the scene whenever I asked Ashley to marry me. We were uh, on a fishing trip, and we got there the, the evening before, and me and Noel, her, her dad, went to go get the boat. And so we were coming back you know, from the marina back to the condo where we were going to park the boat, and there was, you know, there's, there's different no-wake zones and there's different normal speed zones. And we were at about the end of a no-wake zone. And I thought if I timed this just right, I can make this be a short speech. Because I knew there was one coming. I knew there would be some sort of speech prepared by Noel for me to hear whenever I asked for his blessing in marriage. And so I thought if I time this right, he'll have to get back to a normal speed and we'll be, we'll be done in just a few minutes. We hit that normal speed sign and the speed didn't change one bit. We just kept, we just kept cruising as Noel kept giving his, I'm sure, prepared speech that he had thought about. And don't tell him this, but I know that really all that is a formality. I mean, me and Noel had a great relationship. Me and Ashley had been dating for a couple of years. He knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And so it, it really, I wasn't asking for much. It was just a formality. It's a tradition that we have added on to this process. It's a tradition that we've added on to marriage. And, and we add on a lot. We, we did a lot at our, at our wedding we had a first dance, we tossed a bouquet, uh, several different traditional things that, that we as men and women have added onto the ceremony of marriage or the relationship in marriage. And these are good things, these things that we have added on. But what I want us to see in Genesis 2, or one thing that we will see at least, is that marriage initially is created by God. It's not a man-made thing. The traditions that we've added onto, those might be a little bit man-made, but marriage in itself the relationship of marriage has been authored and created by God himself. Uh, and it's in this chapter this morning that God introduces marriage. He is its designer, he is its author, and he has particular plans for marriage. And we see some of these this morning. And so if, if you're not married or if you don't plan to be, don't, don't just tune me out right now. Uh, this is for you as well, even if you don't have any intentions of ever being married. And, and Paul even commends that in the New Testament. He commends singleness for the sake of the kingdom. But even if that's where you are, we, we know really what Scripture tells us is that marriage is about Jesus and the church. And so, married or not, there is something to be heard about marriage or something that, that can point you to the love of Christ and that what He has for the church. And it's put on display through marriage. And we see here in this chapter that God initiates this first marriage. And there's much that we can learn about Him. We can learn about ourselves. And we can learn about this relationship of marriage. So let's read chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word uh, and how it speaks to us, God, how it uh, instructs us and how it points us to uh, your son, Jesus, God. And uh, even here in this early chapter, we see a, a glimpse of Jesus as we hear about marriage and we think about uh, the love that Jesus has for his church, God. And so help us to see that as we walk through this. Help us to see your good plan for marriage. Uh, help us to see that, that these things can be redeemed through a relationship with Jesus, God. And, and two imperfect people even can, can love one another in a way that glorifies you, God, in a relationship that, that shows the unity that we have with you, God. I just pray that you would be with us this morning, dear God, that your spirit uh, would be here, God, that you would uh, lead us through this passage. Always I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So that the first few weeks that we've been in Jesus, we've walked through different things that God has created. And last week we saw a, a zoomed-in perspective on the creation of man. And now having created man, God's placed him in a garden, and we're going to see God create woman. We know from earlier passages that she is made with the image of God. But we see also that God is, is careful and purposeful in the timing and order in which he creates woman. And in doing so, he's going to communicate some really beautiful things about this relationship. But the first thing that I want us to see is that God perfectly, or we could say intentionally, created Adam with a shortcoming. God created Adam with a shortcoming. That sounds kind of odd because all throughout Scripture, after he creates something, he says, it is good, right? But he creates Adam with this shortcoming. And in verse 18, almost surprisingly, he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Repeatedly, God said, it's good. God created light, and he saw that it was good. He created the birds and the fish, and he saw that it was good. He created land animals, and he saw that it was good. And even once he created man, he saw that it was good. But here in this particular moment, God looks at this situation, and he says something really surprising. He says, it is not good. This situation for man is not good. So the question I want us to start with is, why is it not good? Why is it not good that Adam was alone? Why did God create Adam with this shortcoming? Why did God create Adam with this need? And it's really because Adam bears the image of God. We learned that a couple weeks ago, that, that man and woman bear the image of God. And we know that God is a relational being. He has relationship in the Trinity. He relates to and has relationship with the heavenly beings. And so it's no surprise that man, who bears the image of God, who bears some of the nature of God, would want or need relationship from someone who shared in his own nature. Notice that at the beginning of the passage, verse 18, right off the bat, God says this. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. 
And then it kind of has this weird break where it jumps immediately to, to God letting Adam name the animals, right? He brings to Adam each animal and has them name them one by one. And you can imagine this would have taken quite a while. And after naming them, Adam realizes that there's something different about him and these animals. God helps, see, helps Adam see his own need for companionship. After looking at, at all these animals and naming them, Adam says, none of these animals are like me. None of these animals can communicate with me. None of these animals communicate with God the way that I do. None of these animals bear the image of God the way, I, the way that I do. And so Adam begins to see that he is missing something. And God describes this something as a helper. The phrase, a helper fit for him, is a, is a, a phrase that points to, to a woman or Eve being a counterpart to Adam. It's not demeaning to be a helper. God is oftentimes referred to in the Old Testament as helper. Jesus refers to the Spirit as the helper. And so helper doesn't establish importance or dominance for Adam, and it doesn't demean the woman. It, it points to this, in fact, equalness, this fact that they will be uh, fit for each other. It points to his being completed by Eve. They are counterparts that we learned a couple weeks ago. It takes both man and woman to fully bear the image of God. And think about this idea of helper. The animals that, that Adam named surely could have been helpers, right? I mean, we use animals to help things all the time. Even back then, they used mules to, to till the ground. They used horses to pull chariots. Uh, back in the day, they used pigeons to send messages, which is pretty mind-blowing. And we use canines to rescue people under rubble and to, to smell for explosives at the airport. But they don't share with us the image of God. There are things they can help with, but they cannot bear the image of God. They cannot commune with us in the same way that other people can. So here's a little, a little word to, to animal and, and pet lovers. Your relationship with your pet cannot replace your need for community and need for companionship. I know a lot of people who may be really introverted, and they really love their animals because of that. They, they, they feel like, I'm an animal person, I'm not a people person, and that's okay. Me and Ashley, we, we love our animals, but they cannot replace our need to, to, to be with other people. They cannot replace our need for each other. Adam had every animal in the animal kingdom at his disposal. He could have had any one of them as a pet, but that was not enough. He lacked true companionship, and so God lets him see this shortcoming. God, by bringing him all these animals, lets him see the very thing that he needs, and he needs something like him. He needs someone who can, who can bear the image of God with him. And I think it's really cool that God lets Adam figure this out himself. I think it's really cool because when he finally does create Eve, Adam responds with this amazing gratitude. It's, it's, I heard someone describe it as the first piece of art in history. Because you see how it's in those little, it's in a weird different kind of quotation there in verse 23, where he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's, that's poetic. That's why, it's, that's why it looks different in the scripture. So God gives him, uh, fulfills this need, and he responds just desperately. This at last is what I need. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this tells us something about us even today, and that's that we are built for companionship and friendship. And God lets Adam see his need before supplying it, and I just think that maybe some, sometimes that's what happens with us too. Even outside of the need for companionship, we may have needs that God may wait to fulfill so that we can truly see it as a blessing, so that we can really see and be grateful for it when he gives it. You know, sometimes God has to show us our sin before we can really appreciate grace. 
And so sometimes God maybe withholds something good so that we more appreciate it when it comes. God certainly could have just given Adam, created Adam and Eve together at the same time, but there would have been a lack of appreciation. In Adam and Eve's relationship, this companionship, it means an, an intimate relationship of marriage. But even outside of the marriage relationships, people are built with a need for each other. We need community. We need people. So even if you aren't married or even within marriage, you have a need for people. And God gives us the church to supply that need. God gives us the church to be a community, to, to, to love each other and to supply each other with that need that we have for relationship, for community. When God said that it wasn't good for man to be alone, I think that was more than about just the marriage relationship. I think that's a blanket statement about the need that he has programmed us with to be with other people, to commune with other people. I love Troy Church's focus on small groups and relationships in that way because we see those needs supplied in more and more deeper ways. You can interact in here with people, and that's, that's community, and that's good, but when you get into a small group and you can share with some of your peers, some of the people who are in the same stage of life as you, and you can walk with them and, and, and tell them things that you need, things that, that they need, and you pray for one another, there's a level of community there that is, that's, that's more, that's deeper than what we see just in day-to-day passing each other. And so he has programmed us with a need for other people. So first, God, we see God creates Adam with his shortcoming. And secondly, we see that God creates woman out of man. Read verse 21 through 22 with me again. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so here we see God has revealed to Adam his need for a helper, his need for companionship, and then God goes into action to create this companion. He does so by taking the very rib of Adam. And as we've been walking through Genesis, we've been kind of saying, you know, maybe this is poetic, maybe this is literal, uh, kind, of, kind of tossing those up and seeing what might be what. And I think here it's, it may be easy to see this as poetic because it is poetic in nature, but I think there's too many details here for it to be literal, for it to be poetic. I think this is a, a literal thing that God does. I think this is like a surgery almost in which he opens up Adam. He removes this rib, and it says that he even covers it back up with a piece of flesh. And out of that rib, he creates woman. And the rib tells us a couple things about the relationship between man and woman in marriage. It shows us order, and that order shows us responsibility. You see, Adam's firstness does not indicate superiority in any way or dominance in any way. Adam did not earn that rib. He didn't create that rib. He didn't craft that rib any more than Eve did. And so it doesn't point to any higher level of dignity or any higher level of honor, but it does point to responsibility because God's creation is not arbitrary. God's certainly too intentional for that, so the order means something. And so I think we see here that it means responsibility. And so Adam's firstness, though he does nothing to earn it, it's it's initiated by God in creation, indicates his responsibility to lead in the marriage relationship. We see this throughout other parts of the early stages of Genesis God gives Adam the moral pattern, that is to say, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created. In the next chapter, when they fall, who does God go to first? He goes to Adam. Even though it was Eve who ate first, he goes to Adam because it was Adam's responsibility to share with her this moral code, this this moral pattern that he was supposed to follow. 
And it was his responsibility to protect Eve from sin. And it's a responsibility that he failed at miserably. And so being taken from the rib doesn't point to any inequality. It doesn't point to, to Adam being higher or more deserving of honor. In fact, it's honorable for the woman to be taken from the man's rib. A 17th century preacher, Matthew Henry, wrote this about God's use of the rib. He says that woman was not made out of his head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled upon him, to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. And so the rib, the rib points to them being made of the same essence. It points to Adam's responsibility to protect her, and it points to their closeness, to, to their relationship to him loving her. And so being first is not an honor. It's a responsibility that we see he failed at. And a responsibility that men today bear within the families and within the church. A responsibility that, that men certainly won't do perfectly, but that God has ordained for men to do and to do faithfully. And so if we're going to be a church that's made up of families who really honor God, who really uh, walk with God, it's going to start with men taking the lead in their families. With men taking initiative and leading their families in God's word, leading their families in prayer, leading their families in discipleship, who dis- and discipling their kids together. And it's going to take the men of, of this church stepping up and taking on responsibility that God has given them to lead their families. And so the real points to responsibility, but it also points to sacrifice. Even if unknowingly, when God takes the rib from Adam, Adam is sacrificing something, right? He's giving up something. And in return, God gives him Eve. And this was truly a blessing for Adam because it meant that he was completed and no longer alone the way that God had previously described him. He went from a state of not good to good, and it it cost him a rib. All I had to do was ask Ashley's dad for his blessing. I didn't have to give him anything. I didn't have to to give up a body part or a rib or even any money. And I think as we we see this, this idea of a rib in view, I think we see a picture of Jesus and his bride. We know from Paul in Ephesians 5 that the mystery of marriage, as he calls it, is a picture of Christ in the church. And before he says that, he even says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. So while Adam unknowingly sacrificed a rib for his bride, Jesus makes a better sacrifice and gives up his entire body for the creation of his bride, and that's the church. So Adam gives up unknowingly a rib, and Jesus gives up his entire body. And through that sacrifice, he redeems for himself the church. Listen to Paul's plea with the church in in, in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. And so the church belongs to Jesus, and Paul is pleading with them to stay faithful to their groom. And Jesus bought this church with his blood. Acts 20, verse 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Like I said, I didn't have to pay anything to get permission to marry Ashley or blessing to marry Ashley. But back, back in this time, back in Old Testament times, there was something called a dowry in which you would pay the father of, of, of the bride something in which to, so that you could marry her, right? That's not a practice we use today, but we see Jesus gives up something. Jesus sacrifices. Jesus makes a payment for his bride, and that is his own Blood. He gives up his blood knowing full and well what is happening, sacrificing his body for the creation and redemption of the church. So God created Adam with a shortcoming. God 
created woman out of man. And finally, we see that God created a pattern for marriage. God created a pattern for marriage. Look at verse 24 and 25 with me again. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. While this is certainly not all there is to say about marriage, and the Bible even expands on this in Ephesians and other places in the New Testament, this is the foundation for the marriage relationship. God ordains marriage. God, in a sense, gives over the first woman to, like a father gives at a wedding. He, he gives the bride away. And marriages that do not follow this pattern are not really marriages at all because God is the one who's defined and God is the one who has created this relationship. And we know it's a pattern for future marriages because Adam and Eve didn't have parents to leave, right? And so this is a pattern for future marriages to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So here and in an example of creation itself, God sets a couple patterns. So first he sets a pattern for a one-man, one-woman relationship. A one-man, one-woman relationship. And this pattern gets broken in several ways. Even as we read through the rest of Genesis, we're going to see it gets broken through homosexuality, it gets broken through polygamy. And both of these disregard God's pattern for marriage given here in Genesis. So God expects and instructs a one-man, one-woman relationship. And he also expects that a man to leave his father and mother. A man to leave his father and mother. And I think we can expect the same thing of the wife, right? It's, it's a stepping away from your home, away from your closeness with your parents, and into a relationship with more unity in, in marriage. As strong as a bond as there is between parent and child, I think this is meant to show us that the marriage relationship is meant to be even stronger. Ashley and I just found out uh, last Saturday that we're having a little girl in June. And, <laughs> thank you. And my world just got a lot crazier already, just like that. I'm going to be outnumbered. We already have two girl dogs, so I'm going to be really outnumbered. And I love this little girl so much already, and I haven't even met her yet. And I have this bond with her already, and I can't imagine anyone else loving this, this baby any more than me or Ashley could, or having a stronger bond with her than me or Ashley will. But if she were to get married, that's exactly what will happen. And that's exactly how God intended it. There's a special love and a special unity in marriage, a, a unity that surpasses unity of, of, of father and son or mother and daughter or, or parent and child. Ryan Reynolds actually gives like an anti-example of this in an interview I, I heard. I really like what he says, but it's, it's kind of opposite of what we need to do. He says in this interview, he was talking to his wife and saying, you know, I would give a bullet for you. Uh, I would take a, I'd take a bullet for you. I would lay my life down for you. But he says the moment that he looked into the, the eyes of his little girl, he said, I would use my wife as a human shield to protect this child. <laughs> and it's, as funny as that is, and as we may feel that way about our children, and certainly we need, we need to protect our children, God has called us into a closer relationship with our spouses than he has with our children. The, the order of closeness and, and love and even protection needs to be spouse and then child. And what we see is that even before that is our relationship with God. So the love that we have for our spouse has to flow out of the love that we have for God. And the love that we have for children then flow out of the love that we have for spouse. And so if you want to love your kids better, you need to love your spouse better. And if you want to love your spouse better, you need to love God more and God better. That's how that flow works. There's an umbrella even of, of Christ, husband, wife, and then children. That's how we love our families in a way that, that Christ loves the church. And that's why we don't cling to parents. 
We certainly love our parents, and we can certainly keep close relationships with our parents. We, we have. But you cling and you hold fast only to your spouse. And that phrase, hold fast there, it sounds very similar to something that we say in marriage vows when we say forsaking all others, and we say keeping only unto him or her. It's an expression of faithfulness and devotedness to the other that surpasses any other human relationship. In verse 25, then, it offers this glimpse. It offers a picture of what this perfect relationship looked like, even if for a short while. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they were innocent and they were blameless before God and they had nothing to cover up. There was no insecurities. There was no guilt. There was nothing between them. They were in perfect unity. And you compare that to what we'll see in the next couple of weeks when we talk through the fall. And the first thing they do after they fall is they cover themselves up. So not only is now there a distance between them and God, but there is a distance between each other. Sin has created a gap in marriage. Sin has created a, a, a distance between man and woman in that way. Their relationship with God and each other has been damaged. And despite how quickly mankind sinned and broke this perfect relationship, God still uses it as the chief picture of Christ and the church. He still uses marriage to point to the love that Jesus has for his people. In marriage, the relationship in marriage can be redeemed through Jesus as two imperfect people who recognize that and recognize their sin and come to God and ask for grace. They can come together and be in a relationship that glorifies God and represents Christ's love to the church. As we close, it would be easy at this point to get really moralistic, to say, husbands, love your wives better, to say, wives, submit to your husbands, and those are, those are good things. Those are things that Ephesians talk through. But I think as we look at this first marriage, the best thing we can do is point ourselves to Christ's relationship and the marriage that he has uh, with the church. Because even if married or not married, if you're married, then, then yes, do these things. Love your spouse in a way that Christ loves the church. Uh, do things that point to Christ. But even if you're not married or even if you are, what we really need to see is that marriage is, is a picture of God, a picture of, of Jesus and the church. And even if a man can love his wife just a little, a sinful man, how much more can a perfect God love his people? How much more can the love of Jesus be shown to his church? And so as you look at marriages, as you consider marriage if you're single, as you look at marriage if you're, or if you are married, just be reminded that it's, it's all a picture of Jesus. And it should reflect that. Your marriage should reflect the relationship between Jesus and the church. Let's pray.